Hello there, and thanks for joining us here at Lion's Guide, where we empower you with the resources you need to reach heightened levels of success in your performance, business, and leadership. On these episodes, we set out to explore the stories of our guests and the lessons they've learned. We also interview various subject matter experts and review books and other resources to help you establish clarity, have courage, and lead the way. I'm your host, Dale Walls, and I'm the founder of Lion's Guide. And on this episode, I have Christina and Bill Schindler. Uh, Christina is the CEO of the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, a foodery in Chestertown, Maryland, that operates uh, optimizes nutrition and modern foods through ancestral techniques to create healthy food for the community. Christina is also her husband's high-tech other half, who Dr. Bill Schindler is the author of Eat Like a Human, Nourishing Foods and Ancient Ways of Cooking to Revolutionize Your Health. Bill is also an internationally known archaeologist, primitive technologist, and chef. In addition to supporting Christina in the operations of the modern Stone Age kitchen, Bill founded and directs the Eastern Shore Food Lab with a mission to preserve and revive ancestral dietary approaches to create a nourishing, ethical, and sustainable food system. Christina serves as president of the Eastern Shore Food Lab as well. Bill's work is currently the focus of Wired Magazine's YouTube series called Basic Instincts in Food Science, and he co-starred in the National Geographic Channel series, The Great Human Race, which aired in 2016 in 171 countries. Most importantly, Christina and Bill are the parents of three busy teenagers. And in this episode, I explore Bill and Christina's story of what it means to eat like a human and also how they started a great business empowering others to eat and feel great as we were meant to. And this is a great episode. You guys are going to love it. I had a ton of fun doing it with these guys. It's a great story. I learned a lot from the book. So uh, really excited to share it with you guys today. Um, before we get started, hit that subscribe button now so you don't miss any of our other great guests and content. Also, make sure you head over to lionsguide.com and check out our free resources, including our latest ready sheet downloads, book reviews, community events, live streams, trainings, new courses, discounts on memberships and workshops, and a whole lot more. Especially if you are a business owner who wants to perform and lead at your highest level. Head over to lionsguide.com and access our free resources today. And with that all said, let's start the show. everyone and on today's episode we have christina and bill schindler and bill is author of eat like a human uh, a book about eating like a human which we're going to get into today and his wife christina who's a business owner of a local business here near me uh modern stone age kitchen which i'm excited to get into too which and kind of see where that came about from the stories and the books and everything that you guys are doing but i'm excited to get you guys on and explore your story and really understand how we eat today versus the opportunity to eat maybe as we are intended and, and how to process the foods as intended and things like that. So I really appreciate you guys making the time and coming on with your busy schedule today, especially here in the summer. So welcome. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. <laughs> no, thank you for having us. Yes, you know, thank you. The main reason we're even sitting here today having this conversation is because when Christine and I got married, well, 22 years ago, and then started to have a family uh, about 18 years ago, 
the importance, we've realized the importance of, of nourishing our family. And, and, and even though I've been on a lifelong quest to try to figure out how to feed myself and how to lose weight and how to feel good and how to live my best life, when we started having a family, it just became really important, really, really important. And we've done everything we could to figure out, you know, the same questions that everybody around the world is asking today, you know, how do I feed my family? What do I feed them? What, you know, what, what are my food choices? All of that. Um, and we were able to take our unique experiences and ways of looking at the world to come up with. Now, certainly we don't have all the answers. We're happy to share any, any of the answers we have with you. Uh, but I think we've started to at least ask the right questions. And we figured out um, it's, it's been very rewarding a way to nourish our family. And it's become so rewarding that we just wanted to share it with the world. So we wrote the book, Eat Like a Human, and then opened up the Modern Stone Age Kitchen and the Eastern Shore Food Lab, which are which we'll get into in a little bit so that we could use that information to nourish beyond our family and help, help nourish the community. So if you don't mind, what was the trigger, right? So I get it, like you wanted to feed your family, but we all want to feed our family. What was the like anxiety that you wanted to take this route, let's say? Well, you know, my, my own, I have had, and I write about it in the book, some, an incredibly unhealthy relationship with food my entire life. And I'll do the quick version because there's a lot of stuff to get through. But very quickly, I grew up an overweight kid um, in, in the 70s and the 80s. Um, and every time I looked at a mirror, I just felt bad. I, I felt bad physically. Um, I Food was something that made me ugly in my mind. It wasn't something, I, it never occurred to me that food was something to nourish. Food was something I knew I needed, but it also resulted in all these other, other bad things. And then I became a wrestler in high school, an athlete in high school, and a division one wrestler for Ohio State and later division three for uh, the college of New Jersey. Um, and even though I had the body of an athlete, um, I still was unhealthy. And food was still something that didn't nourish me, not for something that made me look a certain way to something that I was scared of it would cause me to not, you know, to not make weight. And, and I was losing 28 pounds in a day and a half at Ohio state to, to make weight every single week. And, you know, that just continued and continued. I had nutritionists, my parents hired nutritionists for me, our team doctor hired nutrition. Mean, we had all these um, supposedly learned people in the seventies and eighties telling me in nine, early nineties, how I should be eating. And none of it made sense. And then the real problem came, which is around the time that Christina and I first met, when I was no longer an athlete and working out three or four times a day, I was eating the same food, the weight poured back on and all of the other issues. And we can tell you story after story about, and, and I'm, everybody, I'm sure so many people listening have very similar stories about metabolic disease and all the, all, all, all the things that were happening to me in my late twenties and my early thirties um, that my quality of life had just plummeted. So I was always looking for that answer to help myself. Um, and then you know, obviously when we got together feeding ourselves, but then trying to, to feed our family was, I didn't want our, my kids going through the same, our kids mm -hmm. going through the same thing that, that I did. But do you want to tell her about the trigger, the actual, yeah, I mean, there is a trigger. There is a, there is a pain point here that Which I, one are you gonna go with? I was going to go with the thing. And then well, I think the other conversation that we ended up realizing is that we weren't speaking the same language when we were talking about food. So a good example of that with the kids mm -hmm. is cereal. So growing up, that was always a standard, you know, but we have a healthy cereal in the house. We had the Raisin Bran. You know, we had, we had those. We didn't have the Cocoa Pops. How do you know Cheerios are very healthy? <laughs> so, uh, you know, starting to raise the kids, it was that question of, well, okay, we're, we're working two full-time jobs. We got to get out the door. Well, they can have a bowl of cereal. And he was like, no, they can't. I'm like, well, we'll get the healthy cereal. He's like, 
no, they can't. And we realized that we were having a completely separate conversation because I thought in my mind, cereal was okay. We'll just get the healthy version. And in his mind, cereal wasn't even an option. So like take that off the table completely. So for us as a couple, part of that was figuring out and, and starting to speak the same language about food of kind of what was, we talk about processed food, what we talk about processing food to make it healthier as opposed to today's society, we process food to make it less nutrient dense, things like that. And then the other, I guess you like to say trigger point would be, so at this point we had just moved to Maryland. We have three kids under the age of four. We, we left our entire support structure with our family and everything. And he's an archeologist and um, a primitive technologist in the sense that he recreates how Native Americans may have lived in, in the past. So one of the big ways is through flint napping, which is making snow tools. Actually, all our kids were brought into the world. Uh, their umbilical cords were cut using an obsidian blade uh, scalpel that he had made and his buddy, who's a dentist, autoclave. So literally, I mean, they started with the stone tool our children into this world. We so, take our work first. Yeah, very, very serious. <laughs> in all aspects of how we and, and I think I only know that, correct me, the obsidian, is is that the rocks, the, the black rocks that have like razor sharp? Yep. 300 yes. times sharper than a scalpel. If yeah, struck, yeah. yeah. And I only know that because once I started reading your book, I had to go out and grab um, the great human race. And oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so I became, if I came with uh, Dr. Bill, a bit of a little fanboy here watching the show, because <laughs> it was all, it was awesome. And I just, just, and I, so I want to pick on that a little bit too, when you get there, but, but go ahead, Christina. Sorry. Okay, so we'll get there. So anyway, as when he goes down a rabbit hole, he goes down a rabbit hole. So in terms of flint napping, this man wanted to be the best of flint napping and literally sought out people around the world for it, which was great. We have rocks all over our house, um, a lot of landscaping rocks, but he would be flint napping two plus hours a day. And we have three kids under the age of four. Um, and I just was kind of looking at that as a young mom of, okay, all that passion and energy is amazing, but can you bring that in the house? Like, is there some, is there a way that we can relate that to our family and because it really wasn't making that much of an impact on our modern family at that point in time. Mm. And that's where you share that you had this light bulb moment. Yeah. I mean, I was in, I, she's, she's right. I mean, and it, it wasn't this one conversation, but it was that kind of conversation over and over, bring it into the house. Like if you're that passionate, can you, you know, it's not just about learning how to make this rock and actually did it 10,000. Like, can you bring that into the house? And I'm like, yes, you're right. She was hundred percent right. But how do I do that? Like she doesn't like banging the rocks in the house. Right. So there was, and it was, I did my best thinking in the shower. It was one moment in the shower that I realized, and this is truly, this is a life-changing moment for me, our family, everything that we do. I realized in the shower that just about just literally almost every single prehistoric technology ever made has something to do with food, like ever. And we start the first technology we know of today through the archaeological record dates to 3.3 million years ago. So in, the way I like to say it is, if you can imagine like all of the Albert Einsteins of our ancestors, millions of years worth of the smartest minds inventing things, all of that energy and power went into inventing things that did something to food, right? And, and I'm not talking now about, um, you know, the kind of lab coat things and making high fructose corn syrup. I mean, stone tools, fire, fermentation, mistomalization, though aging, those sorts of technologies went into food. And I already knew, and I think everybody can recognize that the way our diets changed over time influenced our evolutionary track. And in many ways, in, in all ways, created us as a species 300,000 years ago. So there's a, there's a direct link between 
dietary change over millions of years and evolutionary change. And then I well, if there was such a link between technological change and our dietary change, then there's something here. Like there's something incredibly important that we're missing in asking the question, just, you know, what should I eat? And we ask, we, we say, what, what should I eat? If somebody just tells me what I should eat, I'm going to be healthy. And other animals can ask that, but, but humans can't because, mm-hmm. and this is really the, 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 the root of everything that we do here, everything that we've done since that moment in the shower, and also everything that the book is about. We humans have evolved, and I, I hope we can dig into this deeper in a little bit. We have evolved and created bodies with nutritional needs because of our body size and our brain size that greatly uh, out are, are more than our digestive tracts can support. You know, because of these technological innovations over millions of years, we were able to get more nutrients from our environment than we, than we can without the technologies. Our bodies were built on the backs of those technologies and that food. And now we're in these, we're, in a, we're living in these bodies and, and have these brains, these nutrient-needy brains that require nutrition that our teeth, our fingers, our digestive tract cannot provide without those technologies. So the question, what should I eat, is very important. But it can't be separated from how should I eat? What do I need to do to my resources to make them as safe and nourishing as possible? So yeah, that yeah. brought the stone tools in the house. <laughs> the, uh, um, yeah, and you know, and that's what I was picking up on the book, and and that's where you know, one, I guess, I guess for those listening, and I would like to hear it from you, just the the version of like how did food contribute to our evolution of our brain like how did it impact us like i've heard the things about like when we started cooking food or getting certain nutrients in our our frontal lobe or whatever started to grow like could you give us a little summary of kind of like how we got here as far as like our evolution yeah so i'll give you a a quick timeline thing and then we can dive in a little bit deep with, with a few pieces of that um so very quickly the 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 evolution um changes are when we first uh, separated from other primates at about five to seven million years when we first stood upright, uh, our ancestors were eating everything without any tools whatsoever. So anything that they got, anything that they consumed, they picked with their fingers, they got with their teeth. Now, these were wild animals, right? They, they had a digestive tract that was perfectly designed to consume what they could get with their fingers and their teeth. And they also had bodies and brains that could survive and, and do maybe even thrive on what those natural resources could provide. So they were literally eating insects, leaves, you know, uh, uh, plants, and fruits. That's all they were eating. That's it. The most nutrient-dense bioavailable part of all that is the insect. So that, that's what they had. But they were short. They're three and a half feet tall, brains the size of my fists. They didn't have very high nutritional needs. At about three and a half million years ago, they uh, invented the first stone tools and were able to scavenge animals on the African savanna. They introduced meat into the diet at that point. Not a lot changes uh, for them anatomically for another million and a half years. At, so they, they went from gatherers to scavenger gatherers. At about two million years ago, we introduced hunting and fire into the mix. And we have an incredibly huge jump in body and brain size. Huge. The biggest we've seen, you know, we've ever seen in our evolutionary past. I believe, and many people do believe, that's because the introduction of hunting at that time was profound. And there's a huge, and many people say, well, they're already scavenging, they already got meat. Well, there's a huge difference between scavenging and hunting. Because when you're hunting, you have first access to any part of that animal you want. And even though when most of us today think about including animals in our diets, we think about, oh, a T-bone steak or a chicken breast, 
it's the entire animal is important and the blood, the fat and the organs are the most nutrient dense bioavailable parts of an animal. You don't have to do anything to that to get all the nutrients from it. You don't have to process it. You don't have to cook it. You don't have to do anything. It's amazing nutrition sitting there right in front of you and you don't have to detoxify it. It's great. Um, huge jump in body and brain size. So at that point we became hunter gatherers. Um, and then for the next, most of the 2 million years up until recent times, we just got better at everything we did. We got better at hunting, got better at fishing, got better at trapping, got better at butchering and cooking and fermenting and all these other things that allowed us to unlock amazing nutrients from our environments. And in response, our bodies and our brains, let me rephrase that. Our bodies and our brains grew because we had the nutrition to support that. The food didn't make our brains grow. There were other things that were pushing that to happen. We're not entirely sure what those mechanisms were, mm. but they wouldn't have grown unless the nutrition was there to support that growth. And then about 12,000 years ago, we become food producers where the first farming starts. A huge decline in nutrient density, huge decline in uh, safety of our food, huge increase in, in, in um, toxins and lectins and anti-nutrients and all that, um, huge change in diversity in our diets. And then um, at a, you know, the Industrial Revolution, um, we, most of us go from food producers to food consumers, which most of us are now. We don't, we don't hunt. We don't gather. Um, we don't farm. Most of us, right? We go to the grocery store and buy our food. Uh, and we're seeing the effects of that. And, and we, we do what they tell us, right? Like, and do it, yeah. And, and that's a very good point because at every one of those initial steps, we go from gathering to scavenger gathering to hunting and gathering. Everybody is involved, has a direct relationship with their food. Whether you're the forager or the hunter or the butcher or the you and your family and your group are, have a direct relationship with your food. You know everything about it. Um, it's an intimate relationship. And you know, you see how that food makes you feel. You also see the consequences of your action. If you overharvest it or overhunted, you, you can see that change. But then as soon as we start the agriculture revolution, many of us become more distanced from our food. Now, we like to say, oh, that's great because the agriculture revolution. And now we have we have poets and politicians and people are freed up. from. And there's some good things about that for sure. But those people are getting distance from their food, their food knowledge, or intimate relationship with their food. And then at now... We're at a point where, and we like to say, it's not only aren't we getting our own food, we don't know the people that are raising it. We don't know the people that are shipping it or packaging it. The only person we get to talk to is the cashier at the front of the grocery store, right? Let alone what's in it, right? You, know, you yeah. make some good points in the book about how to look at the labels as far as the whole foods. And when you see the different acidics and stuff like that, you know, like it's, it's had like these accelerated processes to kind of mimic the desired result, but it's not really the best. And, um, and, and I guess, so Christina, is this what the problem was with cereal? Like that Bill was saying, like, this is process it's, or, or was it the, you know, Bill and you guys tell me like, is the, the start about the part about the breakfast being the most important meal of the day? Was it a bit of that? Like what, what, what was wrong with cereal? Just to bring, bring that one home. What was wrong with it? I think that's been an evolution too. What's wrong with the cereal we found out has changed. What was wrong in the beginning? It was, I mean, it was straight process. It was, it was a straight process and it process, wasn't yeah. real, real food. And then part yeah. of it was that idea of three meals a day and being a good parent, you give your kid a breakfast before they go to school because you don't want them to be hungry at school. And, and that's even changed for us because really our family really, so we have three teenagers. Oh gosh, one's an adult, I guess we could say now. We, we move her into college next week, her freshman year. Oh, wow. So we have an 18, 16 and 14 year old. 
And uh, we all pretty much unintentionally do intermittent fasting, which I do think is very evolutionary as well, too, that, you know, as hunter gatherers, you are eating when you are out, not necessarily these three three meals a day. So um, breakfast is not actually a big meal in our house at all. So it has been a full evolution. For it, us was. Like that. it was. Yeah, it it was. was. And now not so much. Um, we really don't eat. We might be sipping on a cup of coffee right now, but we really don't eat till after 12. Yes, um, so. so could you, do you, can you speak to that a little bit? Because I do the same thing. And that's because I fell into this blog or article online. Of, probably, man, I, I've been, intermittent fasting or what someone corrected me call time-restricted eating, you know, um, I only eat from noon to eight, you know, and, and it's because I fell on this article that talked about the way we evolved to eat was we'd be hunting in, in the morning and we'd be, you know, we'd be kind of feeding off of like fruit and stuff like that maybe. And then we'd get our meal and our bigger meals would be later in the day. Like, do you know anything about that? Is it, you know, is there any truth to that or is how we're meant to eat? I do have something to say about that in a second. But how did we start that? Was it Mindy? No, it wasn't was Mindy. What, art, who, what article was that? Do you remember? I do not. It was a jujitsu related article. Okay. There's something I fell into. The big, the big thing for me, and remember, we grew up in the 70s and 80s where they were – Literally, almost everything he told you was wrong, but one <laughs> appropriate to this was eat. And we were very paying attention, and so were our parents, very conscious to what everybody was doctors, FDA, were just telling us we should be eating. And it was not only the food pyramid or in whatever version it was then, but six, you know, don't eat three meals a day, eat five meals a day, eat six meals a day. And I remember thinking to myself, in always that, all right, the good you know, healthy state of the human body is always digesting food. Like, oh, you should always be digesting food. You go to the gym, the nutritionist tell me you got to eat before you go to the gym. You should be eating while you're at the gym. You should eat as soon as you get home and recover. As soon as you wake up, you should put food in your mouth and your body should always have this fuel all this time. And the way it was explained made sense. It's just, I didn't feel right. I woke up every morning ravenous. Like my stomach was growling. I was angry. I needed to eat something and I did. And, it, and then I was hungry at 10. And then I was hungry at noon. And, I, and, and not only wasn't that metabolically correct, but the amount of time and, and energy and all the stuff that took, took it out of your day to prepare that food and clean it up or whatever was, was mind-blowing. But when – and I don't want to speak for both of us, but, but I think it's true. For both – when, when we realized that that isn't the case, right? it's taxing for the body to be digesting food. Yep. And a normal state of the body is to be fueled for sure, but to be at rest or not about our digestive tracts to be at rest. Yep. It blew my mind. And when we started doing it, it felt great. Yeah. I mean, and our day was different. So mentally our day was different. We don't get up and spend an hour doing this and getting this food ready and sitting down. I mean, we enjoy a cup of coffee, but that doesn't take us out of that, out of that fast. As far, you know, we've spent a lot of time as a family um, traveling around the world and living with different groups some indigenous, some traditional, some just historic, you know, and what they do. Um, and I think what we found is it's very hard. I understand that with the article that you read, I don't know who wrote it, but it's very hard to say for 2 million years. And I don't want to put words in the author's mouth, but, you know, a lot of times they, this, you know, they got up in the morning, they went hunting and they didn't get anything until two in the afternoon. And it's very hard. And even if that was, a scenario that's true in some cases, 
the amount of diversity over two million years of how people went out and hunted. I mean, I, I do, I do think you know, my son and I do a lot of hunting. Uh, we like to get up and go in the afternoon more than it, but it's, it, but, that, but, you know, we get up in the morning, we get a cup of coffee, we get our clothes on, we drive, we go to the stand and we get up at the stand. We sit there like this and don't move for a few hours. Hopefully we get something. That, I mean, that's the image most people have. And that is what most modern hunting is about. When I was with the Hudson, Tanzania, the oldest hunter gatherer group in the world, they didn't go hunting. My son and I, we go hunting. It's an event. They hunt all day. They always have a bow. They have a handful of arrows. They have five or six arrows in their hand. They hold with the, in the bow hand. And every one of them has a different tip because of what they're going to shoot at. Like the bird has a different tip. The big game has a different tip. They have a little, and they literally are always walking their own. And if they see something to shoot, they shoot it. They don't go hunting. They hunt. Um, and sometimes they shot something at six o'clock in the morning. I was with them one night. They shot a jetted cat out of a tree at about one o'clock in the one o'clock in the morning in the middle of the night. We ate its liver that night and shared the rest of it the next day. So there's a lot of variety. But when we're with people, one of the things that became became very regular, whether or not they were hunting gatherer group or a farming group or whatever, is they fell into. And I think the same way that Christina and I and our family have fallen into that routine of they get up and go do something. They go farm. They go clean something, they go hunting, they go do whatever. Um, often people would come back afternoonish. Um, they usually would eat a little bit of something that was left over from the night before they had prepared. And then at the end of the day, right, when the day's over, the work, whatever that work happens to be, they come together as a unit, usually as a family unit, and somebody or a few people have spent the day preparing the main meal. And that main meal is consumed together. They tell stories, they visit, go to bed and do the next thing the next day. Yeah. And that's kind of how our life is, right? It does. And, and it does feel great. I mean, to your point about just delaying the eating and all that, like I, I, I know when I switched to it, to your point that you said, I've just got so much more energy really throughout the day. And I'm not like, like you said, taxing myself energetically with digestion all the time or as much, but I'm still, you know, trying to make sure I'm eating enough. Um, but you know, it took two days and my stomach kind of adjusted to the routine and I just had a different level of energy. So it was, it was, uh, it was awesome. Um, with regard to like getting into archeology span and all that, I mean, what, what got you into it? Like, you know, obviously you're super passionate about it and so on, but what, what made you go down this path? (sighs) (laughs) A lot of different things, but I think the short version is, my, my, my father instilled in me a passion for not only the outdoors, but also the past. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't aware growing up of how deep our past really was. So then our past was Native Americans, certainly, and, you know, fur trappers in the 1800s. And we used to read all sorts of... of uh, Louis Lamour. Well, we read cow- Louis Lamour cowboy stuff, and then we'd read, um, like, the Mountain Men, you know, Hugh Glass, and those, you know, kind of... What's that, what's that movie? Uh, the Revenant? Or Revenant, yeah, Revenant, yeah, yeah. So the, that we we read all those things and uh, and we think about them and we would uh, you know we'd go hunting and it was great and, and this 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 it helped us connect with things we really want to connect with our past the environment all these things and it was wonderful and then when I started learning about um, how deep our past really is you know it goes beyond hundreds of years it's thousands or tens of thousands hundreds millions of years um, I, I, there was just that need that desire to connect but also there's always been and i think in both of us we want 
not to be self-sufficient, like live off the grid level, but we want to connect with the things around us to understand them better. Um, and it's always been that way with food, but for a long period of my life, it was, well, if I'm going to go hunting, I want to hunt. I want to make everything completely from scratch and make the bow and the arrow and the arrowhead and all this. And archaeology seemed to be the way I could learn about the things that weren't in the books, that weren't in, in, in the classroom as easily. And that really got me excited about it. Now, we and we've dug sites. We have. <laughs> we've done a, dug a bunch of sites together. Um, archaeology is amazing. It, it's a, it's a, an amazing way to... First of all, it's fun, even and except for a lot of times when you were out. Okay, so the those. only set, like the truth <laughs> I here in grad school, and to make money on the winter break, we worked for a CRM company and we dug out in Fort. Windows Fort Dix, New Jersey, which is a military base in the middle of the Pine Barrens, New Jersey, in December and January. And we dug every day, and they're called shovel test pits. So these STP, where you have to have to have these perfect circles. And for him, when he talks about like perfect circles. After like 200 of these perfect circles, I'm like, just put a thing in the ground. Not one flake, nothing. Yeah, nothing. Nothing for the entire month in the freezing. Yeah, so my love is a little different than his. <laughs> a little bit. But it's not romantic like no. um, Indiana Jones. But that that the, the, the route that I ended up going in it, that primitive technology route, that experimental archaeology, being able to replicate ancestral technologies to better understand when things are pulled out of the ground, what they really mean. Um, that, that has been incredible because that is that to me, that's that, that way to connect. Like, you know, you're sitting here banging a rock, making a tool just like your great, 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 great grandfather did a million years ago to perform a certain task. I mean, there is in, in a world where so many things separate us, right. Culturally in so many ways or, or at least people try very hard to separate us. The stuff that we're talking about, the time periods we're talking about, the diets we're talking about here today with you, the kind of tools we're talking about that, um, you know, replicating all of our ancestors did them. All of our ancestors ate these diets. All of our ancestors used these tools. These are the things that, that made us human. And I love those things that not only connect us with the past, but really connect us with one another. Every one of our ancestors made new stone tools. Every one of our ancestors hunted. Every one of our ancestors ate these sorts of diets. And if they didn't, we would not be here today. Um, yeah. So I guess before we jump into the book, I, I would be interested to know, like, as you found this love for archaeology, is there any favorite, like, wow moment that you're like, wow, this is awesome? Like that, that just kind of shines to you on like your favorite part about like our evolution or something that's really, really wowed you about? Well, I, it's two things I can think of right away, and I'll let you take the first one. Leila. Tell about Leila. Oh, yeah. So we were in Kenya probably about five years ago now. Yeah. We were actually on the largest uh, white rhino preserve um, in all of Africa, an amazing place. And we went out on a walk, which is kind of crazy how you can just walk in the middle of the savannah. The savannah. Um, it was definitely intimidating, but it was amazing. And we we're out. Animals um, everywhere. They're absolutely I mean, everywhere. everywhere. You're just walking between them. But we literally came upon all the stone, which ended up being um, hand axes. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff behind us here. It's kind of like show and tell. But um, they, they literally littered the ground. And we literally were walking on artifacts. It was unbelievable. You know, now in the States here, you, you walk a riverbank and you might find, you know, a flake or gosh, if you actually find an arrowhead or, you know, something like that. But these like this big 
everywhere and you're stepping on them. It was absolutely amazing. Like those eight, what? what are we talking? Like how old are they? Uh, uh, probably between a million and a half and two million years old. And yeah. like a parking lot of nothing it's crazy. but them. And then I think the other, the other one is early on, um, I was digging a site in grad school and getting ready for my dissertation work, which is we replicated this 2000 year old middle woodland fishing village on an island in the Delaware River. But we're recreating this, this fishing weir. And <clears throat> I was digging this site on this island in the Delaware River, right near where we we're going to do this work. And we pulled out a gorget, which is a, a stone, a flat stone piece of slate. Usually it has two holes that would get, you know, you'd wear it on, their, on your neck. And um, etched on the side of it, engraved on the side of it, was a picture of a sturgeon, which is uh, a, a fish, which we saw today, but they're very, very ancient fish. Um, and on the other side was interpreted as, as, as a fishing weir uh, that they had, you know, were catching these sturgeon. And so that, that was pretty cool for our part of the world. And, and kind of what's the date on that? About, that was about 2,000 years old. 2,000 years ago. So yeah, kind of like- that, that was in New Jersey. It was much more recent. Yeah, no, in the uh, in in you know the the great human race series like was really educational to kind of what you some of what you described earlier is so how we went from you know just the scavengers to actually you know finding meat and eating that and then hunting. So I'd encourage you. I, I like say I I went search it was out there on Prime. So it was a good job on that. How was that experience? Like how did that come about? We, well, we have two different versions, not versions of it, but how, how Christina, Christina first. How, 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 yeah, I was like to say mine. No, actually, that was crazy. It was my birthday. And that was your it birthday. It was my birthday. And he had, which is January 29th, and he happened to be checking his junk mail. I have no idea why. This is not my techie husband. I, I check my junk mail like twice a year. Like he was checking his junk mail. Yeah. And checked his junk mail and found an email from a um, talent scout out of New York City who was looking for a professor of bushcraft yes, and wanted to chat with him. And he's like, what is this, Christina? Like, do you think I should contact him? He's like, yeah, why not? Like, what the heck? Who knows? So you popped on a Zoom. They liked you. They liked your look. Next thing we know, they already had the female co-star for the, and this is National Geographic, the great human race, uh, Cat Bigney. And literally next thing we know is we need an entertainment attorney because he needs to go on a chemistry test down in North Carolina. Um, which that was just all crazy because this was totally out of our realm. And the kids were at this point, 11, nine and seven. And, and we totally co-parent on everything. Like he had the morning, I had the afternoon, like we were 50, 50 on all, you know, those kind of things. And all of a sudden he's taken off to go to North Carolina for a chemistry test with some woman for Nat Geo. And this is like literally a month later. And then it was you and two other gentlemen and he had the chemistry apparently. And uh, by the end of April, he's on a plane to Tanzania. Tanzania. Yeah. And he was gone. Like literally from January to the end of April, then he was gone. And you filmed for a month at a time. He would do two episodes, two weeks each. And then he would come home for two weeks. And then during those two weeks, he would make his clothes for the next two episodes. Yeah. And you filmed all the way up through Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, November, you were home. And they had already greenlit the second season before it even aired, um, which was kind of cool. So but that, was it, it, was, it was just a little too much for us. So there wasn't a second season? There wasn't a second season. Okay, all right, yeah. But yeah, the, 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 I enjoyed it, man. I, I, like I say, I've got a little bit of a you know fascination with this stuff, as, as you described. So I was like, oh, man, is there more? Well, you got to come up here too. because we have all the tools that I made for that show. We have in a big case. We can oh, I love you. It was, but it was a mind-blowing um, experience on a lot of levels. 
but we, that would came at the perfect time for our own evolution as a family and food <laughs> where we were really starting to, I think, nail down some of the things we really believe in now uh, about food and our approach to it. But then I got to go live it. Like I got yeah. to go live those diets. And I don't know what to say, it was only, we filmed, it took two weeks to film each episode, but we actually were hardcore filming what you saw like for about 10 days at a time. Yeah. So it wasn't like I was out there for a year living like it was 2 million years ago, but it was 10 days. And what I love is the, uh, and I'm very proud of all the people that were a part of that show, the producers, the directors, the, the camera guys, the sound guys, incredible crew. They were amazing. They work on all the survival shows. They worked on uh, Naked and Afraid. They worked on um, Survivor. They work on all those. Um, uh, what's the one that Dwayne loves? Dual, dual Survivor, all those. And they oh, yeah. said this was the most authentic show that they've ever worked on as far as what you see is really what happened out there. Ten days is long enough to start to feel the effects of the food that you're eating. It's enough to be scared. It's enough to feel good. It's enough to feel uncomfortable, all those things. So I got, I came back from that experience confident that the track we were on in, in, in our own personal journey to understand how we should be nourishing ourselves and our family was, was the right track. And I think that really set us on the, you know, to move forward and actually really do what we're doing now. Yeah, well, hats off, man, because I, I did enjoy it. I thought it was, I learned a lot through it. I, I really appreciated the content and kind of like, again, that you know, the great human race, like how we got here and what we went through. And it makes you, again, appreciate our ancestry a bit more. And so, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. So can I add something to this, though? Yeah, because please. As you were talking, it made me realize because you said, you know, this helped with our journey. And it did, too, in a different way back home in Maryland, um, because now all of a sudden I had to survive without him. And so he was the guy, I mean, he cooks everything. He does, you know, he does the kitchen. I do kind of the rest of the house and how our roles were, were broken up. And all of a sudden he left and I was left with this fridge and freezer just full of all these containers that maybe were labeled, maybe were not labeled. Uh, nothing really was store-bought because we made everything in the house. A lot of things were white. There was just a lot of white containers. But it was very, um, it was an adjustment for me and the kids to be able to kind of work through it, but also it was very eye-opening because I would always see him kind of doing these things in the kitchen and I didn't know what it was and what it entailed. So one thing that always sticks in my mind is kefir. So he would go, we, we would drink kefir shakes a lot then. And he would go into the kitchen and it was the strangest thing that he would pour milk into these grains and stick it in the cabinet, like not in the fridge. That went against everything that I had ever thought about how we treat dairy, right? It always has to be refrigerated. So then all of a sudden he leaves and I have to keep the kefir grains alive. So he would show me how to do that. And then I realized like it's actually it wasn't as difficult as I, I thought it was. And that's been really helpful to kind of put that into our practice now when what we have our modern stone age kitchen to show people that these are skills that are very simple, but the catch is you got to time it. You can't all of a sudden walk into your kitchen that morning and want to have a kefir shake because unless you poured the milk over the grains the night before, it's not going to be ready. So in, from a time perspective in our modern world, it's being able to kind of pre-plan I think like meal prep, a lot of people are meal prepping now, you know, but they might make five of the same meals for their lunches before they go out to work. It's the same kind of concept, but that was a real big eye opener for me um, on the home front. You know, what was going on when he left to film? And the that's show. a good point because it really helped us. As Christina said, she, she, first of all, this is the most patient woman in the entire world. Right? Um, 
I, 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 I know I'm not very easy to live with because I do go down these rabbit holes. I go down them because I truly believe in them, but it, it's, I can only imagine how hard it is for her that I, I dug, went down this route. And, and I think this is probably the case with a lot of families and couples, somebody, whether it's because they have their own pain point or they're trying to accomplish something or they are interested in it. They go down this rabbit hole. They've read three different books, listen to 20 podcasts, and all of a sudden want to come and speak to somebody who didn't go down that rabbit hole. And they're talking two different conversations, kind of like the cereal. Where at that moment in that cereal conversation, in her mind, there's a range of cereals. This, you know, these are bad cereals like Lucky Charms, and these are healthy cereals. And in my mind, with in the entirety of breakfast options, all cereal is over here on this bad side. And, and then there's like, you know, egg yolks, which are amazing. Um, and we were talking different languages. And I do feel like in many cases in, with, with, with couples or with families, one person's taking that leap mentally and has come back and they're ready to do 15 different things. And literally, like Christina said, up heave the entirety of everything that they do in the kitchen as a family, how they eat. And the other partner is like, what are you talking about? But what's been great, and, and I think one of the reasons we're sitting here today able to talk to you about this the way that we are, is that that experience, her being forced to Literally. do the kefir and to make the yogurt and to keep the sourdough mother alive, gave her that kind of insight, right? But also, and this has been very helpful too, the career that I've built before we did this as a couple has been on the back of, you know, me learning. See, she said, or I was seeking out some of the best stone tool technologists in the world to teach me how to make stone tools. Well, if that wasn't part of my job, we weren't in a financial situation to allow me to go fly to Denmark to work with somebody there, but it was part of my job. So, and, and we were able to justify some of these really crazy rabbit holes we went down because of the career path that we were on. And now we're in a place that we're in the same conversation. We've, you know, we've always been in a, a situation where we've always shared the people that we work with, you know, they, they know us, they know our kids and, and we've traveled together, learned from these different groups in different places. And we're part of the same conversation. Um, it's been very helpful, really. And if yeah. it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't it, it'd be, we'd still be arguing about Syria. <laughs> Well, and I love it. I love, you know, the relationship. I mean, you could do a whole other episode on that, like the importance of growing together and being partners. I like how you talked about co-parenting and like that. I feel like I would love to someday pick your brain about that, like the human evolution of that and the importance of it. And you mentioned and even watching the show and even reading the book, you know, I don't know that it's so much directly spoken about in it that I can remember, but how it took a community to you know, nurture the community, like the, the hunters and the people, like you said earlier, someone's preparing the food while, while there's like, there's just so much to it um, that you come to appreciate our, our partnerships. Um, you know, I, I know the part of the book you were talking about where um, I think it was the, the Southern Western Mexico community or whatever, that there, there was a central maze processing where like the communities came out and, and, you know, that was just, I, 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 honor that, you know, because we are so far from removed from that today, it feels like, you know, um, in, uh, you know, again, back to baby throwing a baby out with the bathwater um, with, with regard to the book. I mean, what are you solving for? Like, what do you, what, what are we solving for with the book? The primary 
mission that Christine and I are on with everything that we're doing now, which is the same primary mission with that book is to, well, really is to empower people to nourish themselves and their families and their communities. Um, the message in the book, the way that the, the, the thing that I wanted to get through with the book to help promote that empowerment was having people realize that whatever, whatever their food is, their dietary choices, whether they're a carnivore or keto or vegan or vegetarian or pescatarian or whatever, whatever they're doing, the power is in their hands, in their kitchen to take whatever the food, their resource base is and make it uh, safer and more nourishing. And I know for so many people listening to this, this might just sound like one more thing I have to worry about. Like, oh my gosh, somebody's telling me I have to do this now and this, and now I got to think about this. Well, this is how important it really is. Christina mentioned it earlier. The food processing of the past, and I mean for millions of years, has been focused on achieving three things. Making food safe, making food nutrient dense, and making food bioavailable, right? So when you eat it, you're not harmed. What you're eating is packed with all kinds of nutrients. And most importantly, those nutrients are available to your body to actually make use of. That's what all those technologies have, have, have been focused on. The food processing of today is, is focused on making other people money, um, allowing food to ship very, you know, really, really far, have a high shelf life, be uniform, all these other things at the expense of one or all of those things. Now, you know, we, we could probably spend an entire episode talking about the benefits of fermented dairy over, over regular dairy or nishtamalized maize over cornbread or, or sourdough bread over regular bread. And all of that would be important. But the, the message I want or the, the, what I want to land right here, which is really important, is that every food, I'm confident that almost every single food that we put into our mouths has to be prepared in a certain way for our bodies to maximize the safety and nutrient value of that food, period. Almost every food that we eat today is processed at the expense of that. So it's not like you're going to transform your life if you start nishtamalizing your maize. You're not going to transform your health if you start making sourdough bread. The point is that every part of our diet today has been compromised. Our bread is not made the right way anymore. Tortillas are not made the right way anymore. Our dairy isn't made the right way anymore. Our vegetables aren't dealt with in the right way anymore. We're not eating all the parts of the animal that we should be eating. In fact, the diets that actually made us human in the first place. So it's it's all of these things together. That book is divided into different food groups, right? So that you can see the different pieces of it. And what I hope people realize is that the diets that we're eating today are incredibly compromised at every single step. So I know that, and it's impossible to turn around tomorrow and wake up and start doing all of those things yourself. Right? You're not going to literally tomorrow start making kefir and fermented dairy yogurt and, and, and sourdough bread and this time life maize tortillas and start butchering in your house. I mean, it's impossible. And I would not, would not, not suggest that. So I, but those small incremental, small incremental changes can make a huge difference. And so you, you, you definitely need to start. The cool thing is that there's nothing in that book that you can't do in your own kitchen. That we haven't done in our that, own kitchen. And that we haven't done in our own kitchen and done at a level that we actually feed our family with. It's not just a hobby. We do it, you know, 
on Saturday once a month. It's, it's, it, it, we feed our family on the backs of everything in that book. In fact, we built the entire business downstairs. The entire Modern Sunday's Kitchen is built on foundation. Of, is, is we've made that book come alive downstairs um, to make all that food available. Um, but you need to start. And the, the, what's awesome is that if when you start to learn how food is made the right way properly, one trajectory you could go to, which we love, it's the ideals of where you start making all your food from scratch at home. We've realized that isn't a reality for many people because they might not have the interest or they might not have the time or the research or whatever. That, for a lot of reasons in a modern day world, that might not be possible for you or your family at the level we're talking. But if you do connect with your food at that level, make that magic in the kitchen more about microwaving the mac and cheese. It's more about understanding your food. Then you then go into a grocery store or a restaurant or a cafeteria as the most informed consumer ever. If you learn how the foods that you eat every day are actually made, then you can at least buy the best versions of them. And the marketing, the, the billions of dollars spent on marketing and advertising have no effect on you whatsoever. The colors and the wording on, on, the, on the menu at the restaurant have no effect on you whatsoever. You can make those decisions for yourself. So the, the, back to it, the point of the book was to in, in, empower um, people to do this themselves and understand their food and their connection to it. And then really- Well, and I think the other piece is all the recipes are in the book. Yeah. So it's not just the stories and the why, but here's also the how. So literally you, you do have all the pieces there. And here at the, at the Modern Sunday's Kitchen, the, the, the restaurant foodery that we have, the, the point is to nourish. Like the main point is we've taken that, if here's that food, come come get it if you want it and you can nourish your family with it. But we also still have that, that educational piece. I, a piece I like to say we're a um, open source kitchen. If there is, we've made the decision we opened, um, any technique, recipe, approach to food that we have, we are happy to share. You know, come in if there's something, you know, everything that's in the book we're making here, but we're actually making more things that aren't just in the book too. You want to know how that muffin's made? Here, here, literally, here's a recipe. I'd rather you make it for yourself at home and, and be able to, you know, nourish yourself that way. And then the other thing too, to be able to meet people wherever they are. Um, yes, here's the recipe, but we also know that a lot of people learn by by watching and doing, right? Mm -hmm. So we also have um, on-demand classes on our Eat Like a Human website where people could go on and they can download the sourdough class. And that's been very helpful for people because just the shaping is an art unto itself. So they can rewind and watch him. And actually, uh, the director of The Great Human Race filmed those videos for us over COVID. So they're all professionally filmed and they're really very, very well done. So it's nice to be able to have those pieces for people who are virtually anywhere in the world that can have access to those how-tos. And then we also do um, cooking classes here in our um, Eastern Shore Food Lab, which is our nonprofit, so that people could come and learn uh, the art of you know sourdough bread or cheese making. And you know, it's one thing to, to read, and you mentioned it in the beginning about looking at the back of a label and knowing when you see something in it that they're taking a shortcut, like the vinegar that they might be adding to cheese, which you think is fresh mozzarella. But when you actually take a class and you see how that process is and why it takes eight hours and the importance of getting that high quality dairy that has not been ultra pasteurized, it really does wake you up as a consumer. And that's yeah. really important too. Hey guys, Dale here. And I wanted to take a quick break to invite you to join the launch of the Lions Guide community called The Pride. You see, whether it was at work dealing with the demands of the day or maintaining the demands of my life at home, I always seemed to feel like my struggles were unique, like somehow I was the only one struggling to find joy amidst all the weight that I felt I was carrying each day. And 
you know, what I've come to realize is that we all have our struggles that we're up against and it's pretty demanding. The only way to rise to those demands is to decide and make the change to adopt a growth mindset, to be what I call a high performer. And that's why I started Lions Guide. I want to help you break through to the next level of you and your ability to not only meet, but exceed those demands on you. And in doing so, find your joy again. If you're a growth-minded individual ready to make a change, then I'm here for you. And this is how you get started. I invite you to visit lionsguide.com and sign up to join the Pride. The Pride is the Lions Guide community for growth-minded members like you. Once signed up, you'll get special access to all the free content and resources I'm putting out there. You'll also be invited to join my live online events where I host sessions on personal growth and high performance. You'll also be able to engage with other growth-minded members on our private online group. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast as a member, you'll get access not only to all the podcasts, but also the podcasts that have been yet to be released. So get access to all this and more. So break out of that rut, break into your next level, and join me on lionsguide.com, and let's grow together. Go to lionsguide.com and become a member of the Pride today. Now back to the show. Yeah, that awareness. And and, and yeah, I, I think you for me, as, as reading your book, um, you know, I do feel more empowered and, and it's just, you know, I, I often use it. It's that joke where like the old fish is swimming by the two fish and he goes, Hey boys, how's the water today? And he swims by and they, they look at each other and go, what's water? And, and it's that, right? Like we're, we're just sold to, but that's us, right? Like, you know, we, that's us in how we're consuming and buying this. I, I'll call it junk because in, and I guess, you know, Every chapter you get into the why and kind of the loss, I'll call it the loss of our nutrients um, in what we're eating. But could you give me like a quick version for the people that haven't read the book, but should as to how we got here with regard to like mass production and consumerism impacts, right? Like, you know, what's, what's the quick story at where we are over the last, what, hundred years or whatever from the industrial age to from where we were? Yeah, and there's a man, there's so many things we can talk about. I the biggest I mentioned this earlier and I kind of did that long timeline. One of the biggest issues we're facing today, um, and our lack of empowerment is our disconnection from our food. And when we don't see where it comes from, how it's processed, how it's shipped, how it's dealt with, how it's packaged, if the magic of taking a raw material, making it as safe and nourishing as possible is what actually can happen in the kitchen. And that's the part that's hidden from us. So many bad things can happen. And no matter what you think, the people that are processing almost all the food that we consume do not care about us whatsoever. They don't need us. They don't know us. They don't know our kids. They don't care. They're, and they're, they're trying to make money. Um, and you don't, it's very difficult to make real food and make money at the same time. It's, it just it doesn't work. It, the economics don't work that way. So a lot of things have happened. One is we're distanced. Uh, another is I don't think we we recognize how much of um, our food choices are actually out of our, our control. If we're getting bombarded by the media, by doctors, by uh, anybody in the food world that are that are selling us a certain amount of, of information, and we hear that constantly all the time, people we look up to, um, it, and it's happening repeatedly in commercials and TV and all this. And then um, I don't think we also recognize that we view the foods that we can eat by what we see. Like you go and go to a grocery store and if it's on the shelf, 
we consider it food. If it's not in the grocery store, then it's not even in our conscious as being food. It's things like, um, you know, animal fat or marrow or organs. We don't see them in the acne and in the BJ's and the Costco, really. Um, maybe you, you would see them in maybe some um, ethnic grocery stores, but for the most part, you don't see them in most parts of the, of, of the country. And it's out of our consciousness even being food. We don't see whole animals. We see cut up pieces of things, right? And, um, and this is, this is a, I think, a very, very uh, big problem. And when you go into the place like the dairy aisle, where many of us, other than the produce section, which you walk in and say, oh, this is very natural, right? It's, the dirt's still not on them, but they, you know, that, that just came out of the ground, so it must be natural. Um, we go to the dairy aisle, I think, is the next place where we would look at and say, oh, my gosh, this is like as close to real natural food as you can get. But the reality is there is nothing in a dairy aisle in North America that resembles the kind of dairy that we've been consuming as a species for eight or nine thousand years. It's not even close. I don't care what the packaging says, how brown the label is or how white the milk is. It's there's nothing about that that resembles what we ate in the past. And this is the information that we get. Right. And we're told uh, these little snippets of things, our attention spans are so small. Oh, we need to eat yogurt because it's full of probiotics. And all of a sudden we have yogurt that is, is labeled that has 32 different probiotic strains on there, but it literally has 32 grams of you know, sugar in one serving. And you know, we're, we're making ourselves sicker because of it. Um, uh, the narrative is wrong. The, where we get our information is wrong. And, and I know this is hard because feeding our family is so incredibly important. And I think many, I think everybody realizes how important it really is. It is easier for us to say, we're going to sort of push off the, um, the, the burden of what we should be eating onto somebody who's a professional. Like feeding my kids is important. They need to grow big and strong. The doctor or the FDA or whoever's going to tell me how to feed them. And you're going to go in and listen to that and label and all this. But the reality is you have the power to understand your food at a level you can't imagine, at a level more than these experts can tell you. We are the only species on the planet that hires nutritionists to tell us how to eat. The only species. And we're the sickest species based upon, you know, because of, of, of the way that we eat. There are things about the way humans eat that are different than other animals. Like we have to process our food. That's the stuff that happens in the kitchen, right? That's the stuff, learn and go and cook. And this is what we say, I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's macaroni and cheese. I don't care if it's um, grilled cheese and tomato soup. I don't care if it's a hot dog, whatever it is for a moment that your family, if you want a first step, that your family eats all the time, like either every day or every week or several times a week, that's where you start. Take that food and, you know what, take a weekend and make it from scratch. Google all the recipes, figure it all out, make that entire meal entirely from scratch. And you will know more about the food that you and your family are eating from that. Even if you, even if the food is so bad, the dog won't eat it. You will have um, connected with your food at a level that you can't imagine. And even if you never make it again, you'll at least know, certainly know what to buy. But, you know, to more directly answer your question, where how we've gotten here, we've been increasingly distanced from our food. Money has gotten in the way. Profit has gotten in the way. And we, the food industry is spending billions of dollars trying to uh, fool us. And it's not a conspiracy theory. It is known. It is proven. If you look at the connections between who's producing food and who's um, on the boards of telling, you know, creating standards throughout the country and all this, we know everybody's literally in bed with one another and we're all suffering as a result of it. Um, I like to go into the past 
to try to answer these questions because so much of what we hear now is you, you can find peer reviewed journal articles on in professional journals advocating anything about a diet and, and you know, complete opposite directions on, on how we should be eating. The information about how we've consumed food in the past, I think, is the way that we need to to, to start to, to reconnect and understand what what we should be eating, and that's exactly what we do. Yeah, and and I just I just feel like food has just become yet something else that we're just called. Like I'm a believer in capitalism, right? Like when we're trading value for money, right? But we've surpassed that. Like we've surpassed right trading money for value, and we're just trading money because. They tell us what we need. I mean, and unfortunately, it's not just our food. It's a lot of things. I mean, we're just, and, and man, even today here, 2022, like we, we're seemingly sold things that have no value, like, you know, but we're just, I mean, we're just constantly sold. I know in your book, you talk about your Italian heritage and and things and, and pre-COVID, I think 2018, I was over in, in Italy out in the country with the family and um, I just know one, th- one of the biggest things I noticed, there weren't billboards everywhere, there weren't advertised, like and, and then I came back home and it's just like, boom, just, just constantly sold to everywhere as you look, you just, we're just pushed in, in food. Like you said, it's, it's what I try to teach people today to just start to have this awareness, which is once um, profits get in the mix, the integrity starts to go out the window a little bit right? Like it starts to diminish the integrity of, and and, not, and again, like you say, I don't want to feel like conspiracy theorists or anything like that. I mean, whatever, we live in a free market society. You can spend your money on whatever you want, right? By all means. However, that doesn't, that, that doesn't mean that we need to be naive, you know, and to your point, and that's, this is where I'm trying to bring this home for what you're saying with the book. It's like, if we just are more aware of what we're buying, you know, we can just be much so so much more better off, and maybe uh, whether we're poisoning ourselves or whatever. I, I don't know how to quite how to put it. Which I know we are, right? There's there's plenty of that in the processed foods and all that. But um, but yeah, it's just we're we're just sold. We're just constantly sold. And I don't know that two things happen when you buy the right food. I was going sorry to interrupt you, but I, I wanted to ask that specifically, right? Because I know there's the case to say like what some of this processed food could be cancer causing and all that stuff, um, but you know, when we say getting healthier, do you like your recipes and you start eating like the quality nutrients, right? Because you talked about like a lot of the fruits and other things, like when we break it down or the other parts of the animal that we can eat, you you, you make a great case about the loss of nutrient. Mm-hmm. What happens? Like you think we're eating good now, right? We're eating the right things, the veg- fruits and vegetables and whole foods and all that. But when we start eating these additional nutrients that are available, what happens, right? Like what if we're eating healthy now, but we're eating like what they tell us is healthy versus like we start eating like you show us how we ate in the past. Does that make sense? Well, I think there's a lot of things. And I'd like us both really to chime in here with it. Uh, Number one, let let me just say this word superfoods or this term superfoods is erroneous, right? Well, all that I'm trying to accomplish with the book and we're trying to accomplish here is to get real food in the right state back into our bodies. And I know this is cliche and it goes along with, so that we can be human again. Like we're not trying to be superhuman, eating the right foods packed with nutrients in the right, that are safe, non-toxic and bioavailable will not make you superhuman 
it will make you feel incredible. And that's how we should be feeling, right? We're, we're, we're literally feeling human again. Um, and and I, it's so crazy because real food, organic food, uh, artisanal food, the way food used to always be has sort of gotten vilified. Like, oh my God, that person's a foodie. Oh my, they're a foodie. Like, oh, we should just be fine with the, you know, roast beef and mashed potatoes that's $5 at the near di- nearby diner and that should be fine. No, it's not. I mean, we're talking about food and nourishment and quality of life. I am 49 years old. I was a division one athlete. I am 10 times healthier now than I ever was any other time in my life. I feel great when I wake up. I feel great all day long. I mean, it, we are living these lives that we are meant to live. Can we improve upon it? I'm sure. And we're working really hard. And that's another very good point I want to make before uh, I finish answering that. Our diets as a species, especially here in, um, in, in, in America, is, are so poor that anytime we make a change, we see an improvement. And I think we fall into this trap that, okay, whatever that change was, is, is, is the answer to, to all our problems. And that's the diet I should be on for the rest of my life. <clears throat> no, it's just, it's, in most cases, it's just better than the really bad diet you had before that. And of course, you're going to see some improvements. Brian Sanders wrote a really cool um, post the other day. And he said, you know, just remember the diet that healed you may not be the diet you should be on for the rest of your life or some sort of wording like that. And that's true. This isn't a, a, a step towards, okay, I understand my food and my diet, and you're going to have an answer in a month. This is a lifelong journey that you should always be thinking about your food. You should always be learning. Your body is changing. Um, the food is changing. You should always be improving on this. So don't fall into the, hey, keto, I lost all my weight on keto. I need to be keto until I'm 99 years old. Um, maybe there it is. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't. But don't fall into that trap. Don't fall into the, hey, you ate this incredibly poor diet. You became a vegan. And then all of a sudden, you lost some weight and feel better. All of a sudden, that's the diet you should be on for the rest of your life. Maybe it should be. But maybe it's just because you got all the processed food out of your diet and you're seeing some improvement. So um, <clears throat> anyhow, the to answer that more specifically, how, how do we feel? I mean, we're, he's, we're, we're getting these foods that are full of these nutrients. I mean, that's a piece of it. Right. No, I mean, definitely our energy level has increased. I think the amount of food has decreased. I, Absolutely. Which is really interesting. So, you know, people do then talk about the financial piece of, of eating healthy, right? And eating real food. I think I would wager to say that we actually eat less food. So our output financially is probably very similar. But it's good actually, food. Because it's good food. You're eating quality food that's filling you up. It's giving you, you know, the, the protein and things that you need. So I think Simple that's Simple qu- uh, quality over quantity, right? Like, yeah, yeah, to your point, like it, Bill makes a lot of references in the book about like we're almost halving the nutrients that we need with, with the processing or the, 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 the discarding and, and stuff like that. So to your point, like we're eating less, but we're getting more. You know? and, and here's the other thing, the analogy, you should, you, one of the goals we should have, everybody should have, is that every time you sit down at a table, then, and, you're, and you're consuming food. Every time you get up from that table, you should be nourished. You should feel you should feel better than when you sat down. The interesting things about the thing about the way humans deal with food is that nourishment. It took me a long time to figure this out. Um, being nourished through food is more than just a biological nourishment. Food should nourish us biologically, but that experience of eating that food 
should also nourish us in a in a you know a cultural way in in in, 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 uh, in a lot of different ways, right? Um, it should tick all these boxes. We should meet or exceed our expectations of not only taste and, and you know flavor and, and all that, but we should be satiated. We should feel full, not overly full, but not hungry, right? If it's real food, we should be satiated. Um, whatever expectations we have, they're cultural, like. Um, you know, whether it's a religious expectation or a, you know, an ethical expectation of where our food, all of the, we should be ticking all those boxes. Like when you get up, how many times, everybody listening, how many times have you gotten up from eating and you felt guilty? Like, oh, I shouldn't have had that. And then that sticks with you. It ruins your entire day of eating. Or how many times are or you- Or you felt guilty. So then the rest of the day just goes to crap. Yeah, the whole, the whole day's to eat crap. everything because I already, you know, did whatever. Or you've gotten up and you feel guilty because- you knew that food came from somewhere that it shouldn't be, or it's something you shouldn't have eaten, or you feel hungry, right? We have this idea that in order to lose weight, we should feel hungry all the time and we should suffer. No, if you're, you should be nourishing yourself. If the, if the state of your body for true optimal health is a certain body fat percentage, right? Um, you should feel better as you get towards that goal. You, you can lose weight. And I know this is sounds weird to most people. You can effectively lose weight and get up from every meal feeling fully satiated. I mean, feeling full, not a discomforting full, full and content and happy. That's what real, true, nourishing food does. And, and that's, I mean, that, that's how we're living now. And it is, I mean, it, it's just mind blowing to me that we spent three quarters of our life living a different way with our relationship with food mm -hmm. and health. Yeah. And that brings us to the business, Christina. What? So you got this uh, crazy guy digging up his his neighbor's yeah. dandelions, eating them, and you turned that into a business. We did, and uh, so we have our modern Stone Age kitchen, which we like to call a foodery. Uh, we met in the restaurant world, but somehow this is turning into a restaurant too. So literally downstairs, we have about nine employees right now that are running uh, a total operation, and we make everything. From scratch. So if you saw our eyes at all during this uh, podcast, shoot that away because we've had deliveries. But what's really interesting, and I wanted to like share this and show you, what's coming in to our place is raw ingredients. It's flour. Um, we, as much as we make our own fermented butter, but we just cannot make enough butter to go into all our products. So yes, we bring in the highest quality butter that we can, um, but it's all, you know, salt that's coming in. We're in it's not the Sodexo truck it's or Cisco. It's half a pig. Yeah, literally rolling in. It's not prepackaged bacon. We're, we're making the bacon. So we literally are making everything from scratch. We bring in 50 gallons of milk uh, from a local uh, farm during the the weekend on Tuesdays, we turn that all into our pasta falada cheese for our pizzas and our sandwiches. Um, all our grains are fermented, so we have everything sourdough. And that's been um, eye-opener for a lot of people because when people think sourdough, they think bread, like a loaf of just crusty bread. We make sourdough chocolate chip cookies. We make sourdough muffins, sourdough waffles, you know, crackers, you name it. Um, and we have a couple really important stances that we stand on here as a business. And it's all definitely aligned with eating like a human uh, and the book. So we don't use any um, industrial nut or seed oils. We only fry in high quality animal fat. So our fryer is actually full of lard, which is crazy for some people. So we ferment our potato chips, then we fry them in lard and man, are they good? Like talk about taste the difference. Like they are absolutely delicious. We do our same things with our tortilla chips. We import maize from Oaxaca, Mexico. We nishtamalize it, which is an ancestral process. We stone grind it on a molino. We hand press tortillas and we fry those in, you know, high quality animal fat. 
Um, we literally do it all. Friday nights is our wood fire pizza night. So we have a big oven downstairs. Again, uh, it's people ask, why don't you do it every night? They're so good. Well, because it takes us six hours to get the oven up to temperature with using the wood, right? And it's the sourdough crust that we make and we make the cheese and make the sausage and the pepperoni and it all takes time. Um, so we actually put a lot of our money into, into people downstairs, into the labor side of it. So that's kind of where the balance is. But uh, our modern stage kitchen has really taken off and I attribute that one with the book and also this for us has been a blessing of COVID. So when COVID hit in March, uh, Bill was the director of the Eastern Shore Food Lab and he was a professor at Washington College here in Chestertown. And it was, what do we do with the space? And I'm talking about the space that's downstairs from us here. And we saw um, social action committee in town was doing wonderful things, giving out food to the community, but it was white bread. And that was one thing we knew that we could help with. So he came in with our oldest daughter, Brianna, at the time and was making 80 to 100 loaves of sourdough bread a week and donating that to the social action committee. And that was getting out to the community. Well, Brianna was 16 at the time, took a liking to it. Next thing we know, overnight, she created Rise by Brianna website, put it all together. She took out samples of sourdough bread, crackers and focaccia to our neighbors. I think she had 12 orders her first week and it literally exploded so much so that we were doing deliveries. So this was like lockdown COVID time. We were doing deliveries on Saturday, eight hours worth of deliveries. We were almost like 200 miles. of It was crazy. And then the book sold and this took off. Um, so I was the supervisor of special ed in a local county. So my background's in education as well. And we people have always said to us, like, you guys need to open a restaurant. You need to do this. And it was like, if we don't do it now, when are we going to do it? So I took the jump and left in 2020 to be able to focus on this. And then Bill took the jump and left the college last year. Um, and we now do this full time as a family. And this literally in a year, we went from the two of us and our kids to now we've got over 15 employees and a full fledged business downstairs and a liquor license. And God, we're like, I run a payroll. And I mean, it's absolutely crazy how this has just blossomed. And, you know, podcasts such as this being on and sharing the message Saturdays are really rewarding because we have people who are traveling from all over to come and want to taste the food, buy the food, experience it, come for pizza nights uh, and just be part of everything. And that's what I have found is the positivity of people um, that walk through that door is so rewarding and so refreshing because people know that they're coming to get real nourishing whole food that we also have an open kitchen concept. So you'll see everybody in there making the food. So you realize exactly where it's coming from. As, as he's talked about, it's not just the cashier who's ringing you out with that loaf of bread. You're going to see Ryan back there mixing it and then Sarah back there shaping it. And then you actually you know, are putting it into your bag. So it's been uh, very exhausting, but very rewarding all in the same breath. And we ship too. So for those of you listening that aren't in the area that would like to uh, get some of our products, we are, we are shipping as well. And, and I, one of the, it, it has been so incredibly rewarding. You know, we talked a little bit about our family's journey and everything in that book are the recipes we came up with as a family to nourish ourselves. And to share that is wonderful through the book, but to actually make the food, and share the food that literally built our family that we believe in so much. Is so so one of my favorite examples is we have a sandwich bread um, yeah. and it's an oatmeal honey sandwich bread. It's sourdough and it looks, you know, sandwich bread. And it's called Sissa, Sissa sandwich bread. And the reason it's called Sissa is our youngest daughter is Alyssa and her nickname Sissa. And when we were living in Ireland for a year, he was on sabbatical. Um, 
and we're making a lot of sourdough. She didn't like the hard outer crust of a traditional sourdough loaf. She wanted a soft, like a potato bread. So he made this honey oatmeal bread for her. So it's called Sissa sandwich bread. Well, people literally walk in the door and they ask for a Sissa. Like, how cool is that? Like, people order bread based on our kid's name, based on a recipe he made when we were in Ireland. Like, and then the other loaf, our traditional loaf, is called an airfield loaf because that's where we were living in Ireland when he came up with that recipe. So when you have people come in and ask for an airfield loaf or a sissa, it's just, yeah. it's, yeah, we realize that, you know, some there's there's good change going on and people are benefiting all across. And, and what, what we're trying to do there, in addition to that nourishment, is, is make it accessible. Like, we we don't eat many carbs at all. We are very animal-based. Um, and... You know, you won't see us eating pasta three nights a week or eating a sandwich every day or, you know, any, anything like that. But we do realize that if we set up a full carnivore restaurant, not only would we not be in business, but we would be impacting a very small section, of, uh, you know, very small amount of people. We are trying and, and I think doing I really think doing a very good job of taking foods that people are familiar with. We make pizza. We make tacos. We make Italian subs. But since we're controlling the entire process, we know where every animal comes from. We're making all the meats in-house. We're doing sourdough breads. We're making the cheese. There's no nut or seed oils, even in a man, all of it. Then we are elevating a very accessible meal to something that anybody from a five-year-old kid to a seven-year-old grandparent could um, could uh associate with and connect with and be nourished from. So if you want to come in here and just eat meat, you can do it. But if you, if you're somebody who's going to eat a sandwich every day, listen, we got the healthiest sandwich that, that you can ever imagine. And we can tell you where the piece came from and how it was made. And even from the farming perspective, we can tell you where the lettuce is from, the tomatoes from on a first name basis, because we were just texting as they dropped it off this morning. Yeah. And that's really rewarding as well. And what I also love is that, it was really scary to take this jump on a lot of different levels, partially because, you know, I thought I was going to be a professor the rest of my life. And I still have, you know, student loans from graduate school and we're leaving and we're sending off our oldest daughter to college next week. Um, so many people said, oh, what you want to do sounds great, but it won't work. It, no, nobody's doing that. Nobody's making all that stuff in house. Nobody's doing those sorts. Of, so it, it, it must not be a financially viable thing. Now we don't have a yacht and an island in the Bahamas, but it works. I mean, we've built in one year a team of three to a team of fourteen people, um, and we're continuing to run and, and, and grow and build. So I, I love the fact that I hope we're creating a a model that can help no matter what direction anybody wants to take anything. Yes, it is. It is viable. And yes, like we're not in, in Portland or, or in, in Oregon or, or San Francisco or somewhere where you can imagine a place like this has a huge audience. We're in Chestertown, Maryland. And you know what? We have an incredible customer base of really, really happy people that walk through the door. Yeah. Now I love it. And, and I guess a question for you on the business side is, you know, what would you go back and tell yourself two years ago, right? Now business owners, now both what I what I call when I did this back in 2020 or 2003, which all the chips are on the table, right? You're, you're pot committed. You, you yeah. both jumped from your full-time jobs and you're following your passion. What have you learned that you would go back and, and tell yourself two years ago that you've taken away from making this change and 
Um, I think I has I don't want to say I hesitated to take the jump when he left the full time. It was one thing for me to leave the full time, and we knew that we still had health insurance, right? We still had a salary coming in, and we, we I do the the money in the house. So when you, when you break it down, it's like okay, we can still cover the bills. The amount of sleep that I lost running numbers in my head when he made that jump. If I wish I could have told myself it, the cash flow will be there, you know, keep doing, keep growing, make those choices and, and keep connecting with the positive people. And I think that's been a huge one for us is the business community that we had no idea existed because we were in a educational silo literally. And from the town that we're in, that's, that's who we knew, right. And that's, um, now, all of a sudden, there is just this amazing network of giving people who just want to see you blossom and do well and will, you know, lift you up and answer your questions and help you, you know, supply chain issues. Like, how, how do we access that? I mean, we we learned a lot, uh, an absolute lot, uh, you know, just dealing with the health department and the HACCP plans and all those types of things. It's Definitely going into food is very different than just running, you know, a one-on-one consulting business just because of all the different types of, um, it's not legislation, but uh, legality things that you have to yeah, do, regulations to, you know, from a health department perspective. But I, I wish I slept a little more in the beginning and didn't roll those numbers so much. And believe me, I still roll numbers a lot. But when you're doing something and you're invested in it and then you see the positive impact, it's just going to naturally just start. Um, it's kind of that domino effect and that's what we're yeah. feeling right now. And it's really exciting because, so this is a Thursday right now that we're sitting with you at 10 o'clock in the morning. This absolutely never would have happened last year because we would have been down there slicing bread, rolling crackers, cutting whatever, getting ready to go to a farmer's market this afternoon. And not only do we have staff down there that's doing it, which is so exciting, like hire the people. That's also what we've learned because as soon as we start thinking about the next step, our immediate gut response is, oh my God, how am I going to fit that into the day? And it can't be. It's got to be who can we hire to do that, to be able to grow. It doesn't mean that it's more on us. It means how do we put the right person in that place to be able to make it grow. And I think a great example today is not only are we talking to you at 10 o'clock on a Thursday, we've got the staff down there that's running lunch, that's doing everything. Then we've got staff that's going to the farmer's market. So our family can actually go to Ocean City, Maryland and represent our county, Kent County. Um, There's a huge conference down there for all the counties in Maryland. And tonight is called Taste of Maryland, where they pick one establishment in each county to represent that county. So we are going down the modern stone age kitchen and representing Kent County for the taste of Maryland with uh, everybody through the state. So, which is really exciting to know that in a year, you know, we've been able to kind of put ourselves on the map that way. One thing that we did do, I know you didn't ask this question, but I'd like to add it real quick. Um, and, And thankfully, she does all the bills, so her state, I say that for other reasons, but those <laughs> things didn't, didn't, um, didn't weren't in my mind. One thing we did very early on is we literally, and, and we wrote it. I mean, we we would have these meetings. Either we went and did them or, or had them in the house, and we'd have a big piece of paper and what we're going to do. But we very early established um, what we were going to do, how we are going to do it. Um, we had no idea what it would turn into, or we still don't know what it's going to turn into. But, you know, the fact that we said we were never going to use any industrial nut and seed oil. Any grains are going to be fermented. You know, we're going to, you know, practice a, a nose to tail, whole animal approach. Those sorts of things we established very early on, and we had to write them down. And two great things have happened as a result of that. Uh, many things, but two I can 
want to mention real quick. One is that we didn't deviate from it because we are bucking the system with many of those things. And yeah. from the fact that we have to have a special fryer downstairs that's made for animal fats because it's not very common, right? Um, financially, especially in the beginning, like we're really going to spend this much money on this? Yes, because we said we we're going to do it. We haven't deviated from it. But the other uh, thing we mentioned, or Christina mentioned, was we have this amazing team downstairs. We're at a time right now, especially in the restaurant industry, coming out of COVID where people are scrambling to find help, to find good help. Um, and it's just not there. We haven't had that problem. Knock on wood. Um, people come in and they see how passionate we are about what we're doing. They understand why we're doing it. And so many people just want to be a part of, of it. Like they believe in it. So if we just don't have a team of people working downstairs. We got a team of passionate people downstairs that, you know, some of them have come from the restaurant industry. Some have come from kitchen cooking in their own kitchens. And, and that's the experience that they have. But they care, they understand, and they realize that they're a part of something. And part of the way that that happened is we established what we do and why we're doing it very, very early on. And that helps with growth, too, because it's just like how does this fit into kind of our principles and where we want to be? And so when we introduce a new product, because they, I'll tell you, our kids are the first ones. Like, mom and I, you need to have, like, something sweet. There needs to be something sweet when people come in. And from my financial side of the business, it's like, yes, we do. We need a very simple grab-and-go thing that people are going to come in um, and do. So it was, how do we make a chocolate chip cookie healthy? So we have our sourdough chocolate chip cookie that's sweetened with a muscovado sugar. We get the best dark chocolate in here that we possibly can. And they fly off the shelves. Because also, there's people who are like us that eat healthy. And they do want that sweet treat every now and then, right? So they know, though, that they can count on us because we built that level of trust that when you do buy something from us, you're going to get that quality and then also you'll get that that taste as well. So that's been exciting. And we just last week found out, and I think this is important for your viewers to know, that there's uh, the Weston A. Price Foundation. They are a um, nonprofit that focuses on ancestral health and healing and food waste and things like that, Uh, very world-renowned they just came up with a new rating scale for restaurants. It's kind of like the Yelp, like a healthy Yelp rating, put it that way. It's called the 12 spoons. So what they have are these 12 spoons or 12 pillars of how a restaurant is is ranked. And it's everything from utilizes bone broth to doesn't have um, industrial sugar, that the grains are fermented and they use sourdough. You get the idea. There's 12. Literally, it's our, our pillars. It's kind of crazy. We are the first restaurant in the entire world country um, that just got awarded the 12 spoons. So we just hit 12 spoons uh, last week with them. So we're really, really proud of of that piece. And I'm excited too when we travel, because that's always a big one. Well, where are we going to eat? So now this is a new resource that we'll be able to use when we go to different places to look up on 12 spoons to see, you know, um, other restaurants in the area and how they rate from a health um, and sustainability, you know, using sustainability packaging, all those types of things. So that's another resource for your audience as well. I love it. Yeah, it's awesome, man. And and I, I honor you guys' courage. Right? That's, that's why I asked that question because you're talking about the courage to take the leap to start your own business and and you know, leave the nest of that W2 job and all that comfort area and follow your passion. And so I really honor you guys. And I and I just love the what you said, right? Like when you're really and 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 I want to wrap up because I know you guys probably got to get to work, but um, you know, how much, you know of an analogy it is kind of like to your work bill and like how we evolved with our necessity and, evo- and, and, 
in, you know, your business, like how you're providing for your family is very similar in a way, right? Like how you've just come to step out and, and, you know, build your own business that, that is represents you. And, um, you know, in a way I can just kind of feel how it relates just to, just again, getting back to being human, you know, how we come to provide for ourselves and kind of escape the system, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, and, and all that. So it's awesome. Um, so, uh, anything exciting you guys are working on next? Hmm. Couple things. Couple things. Well, we've got a lot of um, classes, in-person classes here at the Eastern Shore Food Lab coming up. Uh, we do this primarily on Saturday mornings from ten to one. Um, then we also have a couple events that are coming up. On uh, November fifth, we're doing a meet up M E A T up here, uh, bringing in a lot of really big name people. You're going to do a butchering demo, and it's a chance to have a lot of like-minded um, people who are focused on their food and uh, getting you know high quality nutrition and things like that into town. So that's going to be really exciting. That's on November 5th. And that will be, so all the information you can get on eatlikeahuman.com and modernstonehkitchen.com for our events. You're, he's presenting at the Weston A. Price Foundation, uh, which is out in Knoxville in October. If anybody is in that area, anybody wants to head to Oslo with us, he's presenting in Oslo in October too. So those are some fun things coming up. And um, we have a couple other book ideas that we're working on. Um, and a, and a documentary that we're we're working on as well. So we can't say much about it yet, but we're super hopefully. excited. Hopefully, got a couple good things. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Well, good man. Well, again, really proud of you guys. I'm glad you're local and what you're doing and having the impact. And uh, it's been an honor to have you on. I'm glad we finally got you got to connect and uh, sync up here. I, I, it's awesome, man. I keep up the good work. Likewise, thank, you, thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you here soon. Yeah, definitely. I will do. All right, stay by. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. okay.